Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam, and this is The Vice Podcast. I'm joined today by Tim Freccia, a documentary photographer, filmmaker, and visual artist who is currently working on a project for Vice on young American expatriates in Africa. Tim, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, tell me about the first time you ever held a camera. I guess it was probably about six. I bought a camera with my um, pocket money at a garage sale in Seattle. Now, what had, had, did you have any experience of cameras? Did you know that this was something you wanted to grab, that you wanted to touch and use? I was kind of a, sort of somewhat of a gear queer as a kid. I mean, I liked stuff, and, uh, and I saw it at a garage sale and wanted it and bought it. And so just gadgets and objects, you'd, yeah. you'd pull them apart, you'd try to figure out how they work? Yeah. Did that have something to do with uh, the family you grew up in? Was it a family of tinkerers, people who wanted to get to the guts of things? Not really. My father was a bit of a kind of tinkerer, handyman, carpenter, uh, hobbyist. But um, no, not, I, mean, I think I was probably unique. And you were growing up in West Seattle, is that right? Yeah. So the camera, I mean, when you, you got it when you were six. And how did you start using it those first few days, first few weeks? Because I ran film through it. Um, I mean, that's, that's a long time ago. I don't <laughs> have that great of a memory. But um, no, I mean, I didn't. You know, I didn't come out as a photographer at six. So I wasn't <laughs> really a, a prodigy. Um, <laughs> so you just used it. You just played with it, and then you left it behind. But you came back to it at some later point. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wasn't really compelled to make pictures until um, I was in my early 20s. What, so, I mean, between then, was there an interest, a larger interest in visual art? I grew up with a big visual art influence. My father was, was um, a visual artist. He was a designer, and, and you know, I, I had a lot of exposure to visual art. So I guess it was sort of steeped in it. Um, and my, actually, my father had a dark room in the basement when I was a kid. And so, yeah, photography was part of my growing up. I, I imagine he had a big influence on me. You mentioned this love of gadgets as a kid. Did that stay with you, uh, or was that something, was that a passing phase? No, it's still with me. I love gear. Uh, I mean, I can tell you how I ended up in photography. Um, it, was, it really was kind of a fluke. I'd, I'd worked as a commercial fisherman in Alaska for some years, and um, after... And when did you start? Where or when? Oh, when? I was about, s- about 16. Got it. Um... And 
So your parents were thrilled, I assume, with the fact that you decided to leave your studies behind? And, and they weren't thrilled, but they were actually fairly supportive in a non-supportive way. They, um, they encouraged me to seek my fortune and then do what I wanted to do. So I, I didn't really get a whole lot of trouble out of them when I decided to go fishing. And did you leave high school to do it? Yeah. I, I'm not, I think I have an eighth grade education. Got it. If that. <laughs> um, I slid the last few years on English teachers. <laughs> so, um, so what was going on, you know, between 14 and 15? You were still around Seattle, not yet ready to go to Alaska, but you were just making your way in the world? Just hanging around punk rock shows. Got it. Um, that, was, <laughs> that was punk rock time and kind of pre-grunge. I just wonder what a typical day would be like, because you can hang around at a punk rock show at night, but then I guess you sleep during the day? Sleeping during the day, hang out at the Pike Place Market. Um, The Pike Place Market was really rough and dirty then. There there were buskers. Yeah. Would you play, or would you just kind of hang around? Yeah, I mean, I grew up with a whole generation of wankers that became rock stars, (laughs) you know? So all of my high school buddies are, are... are rich rock stars now. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting because all that unstructured time, so, I mean, I guess it kind of left you thinking about sort of what are other possibilities, and then being yeah. a commercial fisherman just uh, popped into your head. Well, no, I mean, actually, and that was actually an interesting time in Seattle. Um, again, be, like sort of pre-grunge, before Microsoft, there was big coffee culture, coffee house culture, so everybody was being kind of bohemian in a way. Um, so there was a lot of, like, goofy art going on. And then as far as how I ended up fishing, it was kind of a no-brainer. At that time, there was sort of a gold rush on in, in Alaska. The North Atlantic had been fished out completely of whitefish, uh, like cod and pollock. And it was uncontrolled in Alaska at that time, so everybody was rushing to Alaska. And huge amounts of money and adventure. And I grew up on the water, cut grade school to sail, so I'm very comfortable on boats. And it was big fun. So you arrive, you decide, I'm going to make my fortune. There are people who are you know, eager for hands, eager for labor. You know, I'll go here. Um, did it meet your expectations, or did you think, good God, you know, what, what on earth am I doing here? I mean, this is- no, I loved it. I mean, I, I did. I mean, the first, I think my first trip, I was flown out in a bush plane that was you know, sort of duct taped together, a seaplane. So we landed on the water in Big Chop, and then got in a tender and went out to the boat, and I, I, I loved it. Did it feel solitary, or was there a lot of camaraderie uh, with the other fishermen? I mean, what was the pretty texture? Good, of the pretty day? good camaraderie. I mean, it was just hard work, so in long, exhausting, extreme. Do like 90 days out and fill the hall and then transfer to bigger ships. So and, ni- 90 days on the boat. Yeah, and operating out of Dutch Harbor in the North Bering Sea. So we'd come back into Dutch Harbor after, sometimes maybe after a month, Spend like two days, three days drinking and fueling and that kind of thing, and then go back out. For some reason, endurance has, has been a big theme in my, in my life. I've endured a lot. Um, and you seem to take pleasure in it. I, d- I don't think I do. I've been told this before, that I must have some sick fascination or sick, sick you know, um, love for suffering, but I, I don't think I do. It's just something that I, I've... Uh, it's like a skill set that I've developed from an early age. And um, 
And I think you clearly have more tolerance for it than other people, and so you may as well do the things exactly. that rely on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of I mean, I'm sort of that's how I made my living is it's just enduring kind of horrific conditions and then coming back with with something good. So you're on this fishing vessel for 90 days. You're up in this landscape that you know you had been camping and what have you, but it's obviously quite different from um, gritty 1970s. Seattle in a lot of ways. So is that something that activated your visual sense? I mean, the quality of light, you know, kind of being in these particular landscapes, is that part of what? Probably. I mean, I grew up in a, in a, in a really beautiful place with beautiful light. Seattle's famous for rain and that kind of thing, but I grew up on a beach watching the sunset across the water uh, with a whole alpine mountain range silhouetted in front of me. The way that Washington State is formed, there's a peninsula, big mountains, so you, it, it was spectacular. It's epic. Um, and, did you appreciate it? Yeah, I really did. I mean, I, I, and I spent a lot of time on the water as a kid, and so I, I think that had, yeah, I've always had a, a, a visual sense, a, a fairly developed visual sense. And I think my father helped um, develop that or helped encourage that in a, in, a, in a very organic way. It wasn't like he sat me down and told me that you got to see things this way or anything but um, but I was exposed to a lot of uh, visual art and music so uh, what was the moment when a camera came back into your life uh, after fishing for know, five years and losing a few friends um, <clears throat> along the way it was a very dangerous business um, my younger brother uh, went up for his first trip and his boat was out for a couple of weeks or something, and I was on watch on the boat I was working on one night, talking on the radio, and somebody told me that his boat had gone down. And at that time, I mean, they were... How old was your like, brother? He was probably 18, I guess. Um, at that time, uh, there were a few hundred boats, and their crews would go down a year, and it was very unlikely that the crew would be rescued sort of to be assumed that the crew would die and so it took a few days to find out if he was alive um, and he was lucky and the rest of his crew got into survival suits and another boat was close enough to be able to pick him up and so um, so that was kind of a, a little bit of a wake up call um, then I got back from that trip and was riding my motorcycle got hit and missed that rotation. And you were riding back <coughs> from uh, Alaska to... No, I was just in Seattle. Got it. <clears throat> riding my bike around town, you know. Um, and right before I was ready to go back up again, I got hit, and that put me out of action for six weeks or something. So I missed... So you were about 21 at this point. It's 20, 21, something yeah. like that. And um, at that time, my father was teaching at a, um, an art college in Seattle, and he suggested that I look into something a little more sustainable... So I went, went down to the school to check it out, and they said, what do you want to study? And I said, I don't know, what do you got? And we sort of toured around, and I liked the photography department and the dark room and chemicals. And You'd grown up around it, too. Yeah, and uh, I said, that looks like fun. And so I did it, and I was working as a photographer within a week. I just went nuts on it and sort of nonstop. So I, you know. How did that come together? How did you find a gig, I mean, when you... I just I just started shooting. Um, I was uh, I did really well in school, so they would you know push stuff towards me. I started working as a fashion photographer. Um, I started shooting video before I got out of school, and then uh, 
So by the time I had finished school, I was working. Uh, right after school, I went straight back to Alaska and opened a commercial studio there and um, started shooting for um, the pipeline company. This is right after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, so it was sort of like working for the enemy, but <clears throat> their, their attitude was, you know, money's no object, just make us look good. And that was probably where I stepped. Actually, while, while I was in school, I was interested in, in covering uh, conflict. And I almost quit school to go to, uh, I can't remember what was on then, something in Central South America. But um, so I was sort of already started leaning towards that. And going up to Alaska was great fun. And it was exciting. I spent a year up there. It was exciting because and it was, I think, helped develop some of the, my attitude towards photography because I had an unlimited budget. I do whatever I want, so I can see if I want helicopters or a drill. What were you photographing? Just as long as, it, as long as it made the oil company look good. So if I can get like a, you know, a caribou silhouetted against the pipeline at sunset or you know, sea otters frolicking in front of a, a tanker, <laughs> it was... But it was it was a lot of fun, um, and Alaska I, then and I think still had a huge project where I proposed that I drive the length of the pipeline. So we flew up to Barrow, which is like the top of the world, and kitted out a um, suburban with a bunch of 16 millimeter film and medium format film and video, and and drove the length of the pipeline and shot. One thing I find interesting about this, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that you know, you're, when photographing a pipeline in these particular landscapes uh, that are, you know, in, in a way, desolate, or at least of, of kind of a human presence, whereas if you're in a conflict zone, I mean, part of it is the chaos of bodies and other people. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, kind of you, were, you say you were already drawn to that, but what was the first thing that took you out of that Alaskan landscape to a conflict zone? Um. It was chance. I, uh, after that um, year in Alaska, I ended up back in Seattle with um, my fiance at the time, and she was from Kentucky. And she wanted to return to Kentucky to finish university there. So, um, so I did that. And from there, I was invited to Senegal, which isn't a conflict zone, but from Senegal, I ventured into uh, Niger, Mali, and there was a Tuareg uprising, the beginning of the Tuareg uprising, which has sort of culminated in, in what's going on now in northern Mali, which is complicated. It's, it's more than just uh, um, jihadis. But that was my first exposure to that. And you were invited to Senegal? Was it under the auspices of some institution? or It was the government, the prime minister at the time, um, Had who, seen your work photographing no, it was, the otters? <laughs> he was um, not really. Um, actually, it was through a friend. It, mm-hmm. uh, a friend who was a Life magazine photographer in, um, in the Sahara. He made a career of it. And he was from Kentucky. And he was the cousin of another friend. And we met somehow. And he had The Kentucky-Senegal connection is strong. Yeah. Um, and he, he had, had and still has great connections all over Africa. And um, even to this day, he's, he provides me with some of these connections. So at that time, I was very young, but um, there was a, a conference p- put on by um, the uh, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, and on uh, the theme was using the media as an integration tool. 
Um, and so he was invited. Integration meeting, integration of the society. Of, I mean, of, of the West African states. Yeah. Oh, I see. Using media, yeah. you know, how to use media. And at that time, I was somewhat of an expert on low-power TV. I don't know why I was, but I was. And uh, how to set up a you know, broadcast unit in the bush for like 5000 bucks or something. Is that something you had done while in Alaska? No, I'd been... Actually, I'd, no, I guess I should back up. I, before West Africa, I was in Haiti for... Um, the rise and fall of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And that was, that was my first exposure to conflict. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, I was kind of old hand by the time I ended up in Africa. But, mm-hmm. but I, so I was invited to Senegal to sort of consult um, on this conference. And then from there, I traveled further east into the Sahara. And I, that, that was where I sort of began this love affair with Africa. Tell me, when you were in Haiti, I wonder about the other foreigners who make a life there, who make their way there. Um, did you have any impressions of them? Did you feel a kinship with them? Or did you feel as though, I mean, I imagine many different things will draw you to a place like that in a climate like that. But. What's interesting about Haiti is that at that time, there were very few foreigners in Haiti. There was no foreign aid, really. Um, I went down there and made a film for USAID on an agriculture school that they had out in the southwest, and that was like the only thing. And what's sort of striking to me is, is after that period, I really hadn't been to Haiti, or I hadn't been to Haiti at all until the earthquake in 2010, and I was, not only was I shocked by the devastation, but I was shocked by the amount of white people, and the number of white people that were there. So at the at my, my first time in Haiti over a few years, like 89 to 91 or something around there, um, there were very few expatriates there. So Haiti is obviously a striking contrast uh, from where you had been before, yet you embraced it. Yeah, I loved it. Um, when I arrived in Haiti, I, I still remember the smell. Um, that I was enchanted by the smells, the smell of burning bananas and shit. Um, and I like I like the heat and the intensity of the Haitian people, um, which I think would come back a lot later in, uh, over my career. I, there's something about the Haitians. Um, I mean, during that time, their first democratically elected president came to power in this landslide. And I, I remember watching a crowd partying, celebrating over Aristide's um, election, and then a soldier walked through and they said I'm on fire just like that so um, so that was my first exposure to that kind of like human condition there's a lone soldier walking through this uh, a crowd of, of people celebrating and but uh, there was there was something in that moment or in that time in Haiti that uh, that really did they turn on a dime? Did you sense yeah. a change of mood yeah. before it happened? Yeah, and I've ex- no, I, I didn't, and I've I've experienced this in other places since. Um, and maybe have a, a little bit more of an idea of like when that happens, but um, but that fascinated me, and it still does. The where humans kind of hit what I call red line, um, and can do anything. They can, you know. It's like you know, sort of at the, the peak of human existence, um, and so that concept fascinated me. And it was, Haiti was full of it. Um, so I, made, you know, I made multiple trips to Haiti 
over So just the idea years. that this was a place that was on the knife edge of this kind of chaos, a place that felt incredibly warm and convivial yeah. and positive, but then suddenly always lurking beneath the surface was this potential for violence. Yeah. And you found that. Um, is, is exciting the right word? or I guess um, compelling uh, or intriguing or, or, yeah. I mean, this is something that I've always um, been drawn to. Is that something that you had registered earlier in life? I mean, you know, just I, I, I mean, did you do you feel as though you had grown up around you know generally pretty genteel, placid people, or you know was that something you sought out like in, in the punk era? I mean, just kind of the idea of abandon and the idea of that kind of a turn or change. And maybe I mean, it's it, I definitely you know I grew up in a pretty pretty quiet household. I mean, there was nothing intense going on there, um, and it was pretty genteel. So I think. <clears throat> Yeah, and the punk scene and um, later fishing. I mean, there was sort of looking for some kind of... I mean, I don't, I don't want to say I've been looking for violence because it's it's not something that I go I go looking for. But um, but it's something I'm somewhat fascinated by. But it's, it's also the extremes of human experience. Is yeah. that maybe one way to think about it? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think there was any particular, you know, experience in my childhood or something that, you know... It just some 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 part of my makeup. You describe yourself as a documentary photographer, and I wonder when you had been in Haiti and later uh, when you were in West Africa that first time. Uh, was part of the mission this idea of wanting other people to see what was happening in these places and the texture of life in these places, or was that secondary? It was fundamentally about your curiosity, and that you do whatever you have to to make it. A viable to, to make a living from it. I think to be honest, in the beginning, it was more about my own experience and 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 pursuing this you know uh, human condition or whatever. I, I was I wanted to see more of the world and see more people. Satisfying your curiosity. Yeah. Um, and I think at some point I realized I could make a living at it, and so it became a little bit more focused um, professionally. But I don't. I, I would never call myself a journalist, or a photojournalist, um, because I'm. I'm not really. Um, I mean, I've worked for all the major print outlets in some, some time or another. But my own personal mission is to, is to document the you know the human condition, um, and like we were talking about earlier, I think it's, it's there's something in my own experience over the years of being able to endure a lot of uh, just general discomfort um, that it, that's that is a specific skill set that along with the ability to make good pictures and moving pictures that um, has kept me alive one thing I wonder about is in these environments and you mentioned having been in Haiti uh, at an early enough time that you didn't have swarms of expatriates running around everywhere. This was something that was very built in and present. So you must have been extremely visible in these settings, mm -hmm. yet you're also working to document uh, something. And I wonder how you feel about that. I mean, you know, uh, registering, uh, do you feel as though your presence changed the mood? Uh, or do you, th how is it that you kind of try to avoid that and how to blend in and be invisible? Um, I've, I've watched the whole world change in the last you know couple of decades as far as you know expatriates so places like Haiti and Africa there were there really weren't any white people I mean, the only the only 
Western people you run across were missionaries who, you know, it's like few and far between. And this has all changed a lot in the last couple of decades, and especially in the last decade. There's been a sort of an explosion of, of, um, of expatriates. And so in the past and still, the way I've worked is, is a lot more slowly than people in the same business or who are selling to the same outlets work now. People parachute in, run st- you know, straight into a situation, shoot for a couple of days, and then book out. And, I mean, also, I started in, before digital, so <clears throat> film was an entirely different process. I would shoot... Incredibly painstaking. And, yeah, and it's just yeah. a lot slower. So everything was a lot slower. We'd go, you know, spend weeks getting into a place, spend a month there, you know, weeks getting out. If I shot something that was kind of breaking news, I'd develop a film in the, you know, in the bathroom or something and put it in a bag and send it out and not see it for months. And with digital now, I mean, I'm shooting video and, you know, of, of a battle one day and filing it that evening over satellite. Um, so not only the business changed, but also um, to get back to what you were asking, there's a lot more people around. And that's, that's changed my uh, experience drastically. I used to be the only guy, you know, I would stick out, but also that would force me into a position where I had to really connect with people um, and establish trust and a rapport and that kind of thing. Now people, you know, in conflict and crisis are accustomed to the press. There's a narrative, there's a script that such people show up, uh, you know, in a time like this, where yeah. there hadn't been in the same way. Well, before. I mean, to kind of, to sort of make the point, I was in Goma in Eastern Congo in November for the second time um, on my birthday, <laughs> four, four years later. Uh, it just happened to be my birthday. And there was the same rebel group under a different name who laid siege to the city and I was photographing the uh, you know the civilian population as they were fleeing and I saw a woman run by me that I had photographed four years to the day before and she saw me I saw her (laughs) Um, that was that was kind of a, a big moment for me to realize that you know it's become full circle. That's. I wonder. I mean, is there, is there a sense of survivor's guilt, or is there a sense that you know I'm an observer and you know this is my work? I mean, you know, do you? I wonder. I mean, obviously, this is someone you I assume saw in passing, but you know, what is your sense as you shuttle back and forth? You're in a place like this. You're present, and, and I imagine your work demands that you look very closely mm-hmm. um, at at the scenes unfolding before you, and then you leave. Yeah, there's. Um, I've been asked this question before, and and uh, there's a the answer I gave one time was there's a switch. Uh, you've got to switch off normal. Or I have to switch off normal human uh, reaction to stuff that would you would normally like you know throw up or cry or run away or whatever. You just it's like a light switch. You just turn it off and work because you can't work if you're throwing up. Is that a manifestation of the capacity for endurance you had described before? Yeah. I mean, is that the... Yeah, but also along with that comes this sort of... Um, yeah, there, there is a survivor's guilt, for sure. And and I struggled with that for a few years. I think I've kind of got a handle on it now. Um, but there's all kinds of survivor, survivor's guilt. You know, I've, colleagues have been killed. I've watched 
people die. So there's there's definitely this certain amount of guilt there, but that's got to be processed in some way. And I've spent the last, I don't know, let's say a year or so, or two, kind of processing that. Um, so, it's, it, I mean, to kind of bring this together, it's gone from me as a young man seeking experience and, and connecting, you know, seeking to connect with, with people um, to more of a, um, I feel, a, a sense of responsibility to document um, so that the world can see what's going on. I wonder about continuities and discontinuities. So some of what you're talking about, uh, and when you discussed Haiti earlier on, you're talking about these breaks in the mood, in the scene, and just kind of how things turn from one thing to another. And you've also been in very, throughout your career, in very different landscapes and very different places. And I wonder if over time you've come to see more continuities. That is, um, are there ways in which you see some of what you've seen in Haiti and Congo in other landscapes? Like, a, you know, when you navigate New York, do you think this is just one kind of landscape, it's entirely different, and then this is a conflict zone? Or when you see, you know, any chaos or anger, you know, kind of, you know, in a flash, you know, someone yelling at someone on the street, mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of wonder about that. I mean, do you kind of see, you know, there's this kind of like shared human type and, uh, you know, sometimes things turn to violence, sometimes they don't, and it's always present? Or do you think of it more as just a radical break? You know, once I get off the plane at JFK, this is a safe zone, it's totally different, it's totally foreign from the things that I see and experience in other places. I mean, there, I think there are, you know, there's common threads throughout humanity. People have, a, you know, the capability to become violent or, or evil in some way, but um, there's a big difference. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't feel... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not worried about, you know, somebody jumping out of a dumpster with an RPG here, you know. Um, Perhaps you should be. It's possible, yeah. I mean. But, no, I mean, there is a, there's a big disconnect. And um, there's also culture shock. There's everything shock. I mean, existence shock. Just like having running water and electricity and food that's safe to eat, that kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's a big shock. You've been living overseas for the last 25 years. More or less, yeah. Where have you been primarily based? Has it mainly been in Africa? No, I mean, not really. I was based in Germany for about 10 years, but I spent most of my time in Africa. I mean, yeah, I've spent the bulk of time, I would say, in Africa. Um, in places where, yeah, there's no water, there's no food, there's no electricity, uh, there's no roads. So... <clears throat> I'm still, you know, uh, in a little bit of a... I've been here for a couple of months and uh, based here for a couple of months now, which is exciting for me because um, it's great to have all these things, you know, water, electricity, internet, food, um, TV. I've made more, way more TV than I've watched in my life, and uh, it's, it's really mind-blowing to watch TV. <laughs> What do you find yourself watching? I, I've been watching. I mean, we can. I don't know if we can just go right. for brand here, but um, <laughs> I've, I've just about watched all of Breaking Bad. I love it, but there's also a bunch of crap. I mean, it's like I mean, it's it's kind of it is surreal to me. There's a lot. It's of, kind of like binging to some degree. Yeah. 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 So right now you're working on a project in which you are tracing young Americans who are living and working in Africa, and I wonder. Having made these leaps yourself, having gone to the Alaskan wilderness at 16, but of course, you know, these are kids in a different generation. What are the things you see in them? I mean, are there shared qualities? Do you recognize some of yourself in them? 
Yeah, you know, it's, I, I think there is this great American, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the, the American DNA is to solve problems, can do, fix it kind of stuff. And frontier, the, the whole concept of frontier. And so when I was at that age, Alaska was the last frontier. It still is in a way, but it's not in the same way that it was when I was that age. Um, so, I mean, the general concept with the show that I'm working on now is you have young uh, frontiersmen that, uh, you know, in a, in a sketchy economy, and they have an opportunity to overcome the obstacles and put up with the discomfort of operating in, in some of these wild environments and, and get rich. Um, so there is something really American about that. It doesn't, it doesn't seem that way at, at, uh, at first, I think. You know, you know, we wouldn't think of Africa as the last frontier, but there is something like that going on in Africa right now. Um, that I've been watching. And it's, it's sort of refreshing in a way because I've seen a whole lot of other um, people flow into poverty-stricken areas over the last, say, decade. There's been this explosion in relief and development. Uh, like, like I said, like you know, 20, 30 years ago, the only people you would see doing relief or development were missionaries who would give up everything they owned and go off to help the poor people. Now, you've got these armies of multiple masters bearing university graduates, you know, who have degrees in international development and, and they're all, you know, making six-figure salaries right out of school. And that changes everything. It changes local economies. It changes how people view Western people. So to get back to these, you know, young frontiersmen, it's refreshing in a way to see guys go out there and actually get dirty and come under fire and, you know, have to haggle their way and hustle their way around, um, as opposed to this legions, armies of, of um, what I call do-gooders that, um, that are living on, you know, UN bases, completely isolated in a little bubble. They don't get out. They're not allowed to go out. Do you notice any systematic differences between those you refer to as the do-gooders and the frontiersmen? I mean, do the frontiersmen tend to come from a certain kind of background? I don't know. If it's, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, these guys that I just profiled were raised in in sort of a fringy way. They were one of them was homeschooled. Um, they're all Seventh Day Adventists, but none of them seem to be that, you know, hardcore. But yeah, I think there was. There, I think they were raised in this sort of semi-survivalist way and. Had us all three of the guys that I profile on this piece I'm working on right now, or have sort of got that kind of outdoorsy thing. But I mean, I also watched them. One of them, and it was his first experience in Africa, and I watched him go from being kind of cocky hillbilly to um, breaking down, and then actually reemerging as as an African, also as a white African. Um, it was fun to watch. One thing I find fascinating is that when you're talking about the do-gooder universe, a lot of it is people who had been good students and people who had flourished in institutions, and then this is kind of a capstone. You know, social enterprise, I, uh, development work. This is just a way to be for people who have been on a kind of routine path. Whereas uh, this other frontiersman thing you're describing seems to be people who were not on that path, who don't identify with that path. And so one interesting question is, when you talk about that as a kind of American story, mm. I wonder if that's just not nearly as central an American story as it once was. I mean, I wonder if we have no, the capacity for that. Because I think it's a romantic concept. It's like it's it's something that that 
that's why I like this story. Is um, it's more of like what I would like to think America's about, and as opposed to what we're like in practice. Yeah, and the do-gooders are not. I mean, I think I, I have a personal opinion that it's it's a it's a viable career choice. So if you're at that age where you're going to go to go to university, and you have the option to study, um, you know, business administration or law or medicine or whatever, and go and climb a corporate ladder, um, as opposed to study international, you know, international studies, development, you get out of school, you get a nice job with an NGO or the UN, easy money, um, you know, laissez-passer, no problems, completely isolated, but you're going to, you know, interesting places and doing good and sort of relieving some of the Western Christian guilt. It's like, I don't, this is a whole separate topic, you know, a whole separate story, but I don't really believe that there's that much good being done, as opposed to these guys that I'm following around who actually are doing a lot of good on the ground, just in their day-to-day hustle. You know, they've got to deal with local people. In do, you a very, do you think it's something that builds mutual respect? I mean, is it part, because, you know, one absolutely. thesis is the idea that the development world, and, and I don't know if this is necessarily fair, but the idea is that, you know, there is a kind of implicit imperialism or paternalism yeah. about it, the idea that, you know, you guys aren't living the right way, we're going to create these institutions for you, and it obviously comes from a fundamentally benign place, but it is this idea that, you know, kind of we have this knowledge we'll bring to you, whereas it seems that the frontiersman thing is partly... <laughs> We're learning how you operate. Exactly. We are meeting the needs that you have, and you know we're obligated. We're at your mercy in a way. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's something incredibly arrogant about the development world. You know, there's this "we know better" kind of thing. And there's huge discussions about this, and I've gotten into huge discussions about it. It's not really my business, but I, I do have an opinion about it. I've seen far less good done than 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 damage um, in my own experience, and. I've been around these these people for the last few decades everywhere, and most of, by far, the majority of what I've seen has has, has been less less good and more bad. But then you take these characters, who, like I say, are forced to really interact with people and are somewhat at their mercy, and have to learn, you know, how how to navigate socially and um, and logistically. You know, there's no you know, Russian helicopter is going to fly them out. If something goes wrong, if something breaks, they've got to fix it themselves. They've got to make a deal with a guy. There's a few scenes in this that are pretty funny when the guys resort to what they call Juikali in Swahili, which is bush mechanics, shade-free mechanics. How did you get started? How did you find this particular story? There's a character that I've known for some years um, that I met in Nairobi, and he'd been, he'd been sort of operating in South Sudan for a few years in, in a low-level way. How did you first encounter him? We met at a bar somewhere. and um, It's where most great things begin. <laughs> and um, I, I watched him over the years. I mean, he actually ended up living in my house at one point. He was sort of down and out, and I was off. I was away a lot. But um, I've stayed friends with him, and I've watched him develop as this sort of businessman in... Uh, East Africa over the last years, and so I had just come out of, well, a series of injuries, and was um, just in eastern Congo, and then the mountains of Ethiopia, I was, basically I was looking to take a little bit of a break, um, or take it easy, and my 
friend told me he had this big convoy coming up, and I decided to ride along and see what happened. So I didn't really expect anything. Um, I just thought there would be some interesting material there. And, and along the way, this concept became clear that these guys, he had two other young American guys with him. And I became interested in, in this whole you know, frontiersman mentality and, uh, and watching these guys develop, the, especially his, his two colleagues develop along the way and you know, start to become African in a way. In, in dealing with the logistics of this seven-country trip. How did he find his colleagues? They, uh, they all kind of grew up in the same sort of fringy church um, background, so their parents all knew each other. Ian, my main character, my friend, uh, has been operating in, in uh, East Africa for know, six or seven years. And uh, the other main character came straight in from like the hills of Tennessee. When you're out there, uh, you know, kind of you're, you're living and working. Uh, you mentioned having been in Nairobi. What is it that draws you to some people rather than others? I mean, you know, you meet this guy in a bar, and I'm sure you know, kind of dime a dozen, plenty of expatriates around right now. What was it about this particular guy that struck I, you as you know worth keeping an eye on? I think um, somehow his, his what, what draws me to people are is their ability to. I always ask myself, you know, would I travel with this person? Would I want to get stuck out in the bush with this person? Um, and that that it's true. I mean. I'm, that's sort of standard by which I judge people. It's not like you know how much money they make or how smart they are or, or you know or, or, or how many books they read. It's more like could I survive with this person in the bush? And so in this case, Ian struck me as a survivor. Um, what are the things that uh, you know? What are the telltale signs of someone you'd want to travel with? I, you know, I, I think just <laughs> a lot of it's got to do with like you know the social ability because. I'm not talking about like you know trekking across you know the the a wasteland or something. It's a lot of it's about how how to navigate socially. So I guess what caught my attention with Ian was his, was his he's a natural hustler, you know. Um, but in the but he's a natural hustler and an American, but in a, in this African context, I found that intriguing. And did uh, the other two uh, that he was traveling with did they? Uh, did some of that hustling ability rub off on them? Yeah, they, I, I watched them learn along the way and, and, uh, and adapt. How they did were, you pick it up? Just by being, you know, by, by, yeah. You didn't have it as a 16-year-old, I imagine. I mean, so is it something, you know, was it something that you developed while in Haiti, or is it something that you developed while no, I think, making your way in your work? I think I, I think I developed that at an early age in, at home in Seattle, just hanging around, you know, skipping school, hanging around punk rockers and... Dodgy people, dope dealers, you know, um, street people. You know, just learned. I learned some of that along the way. So when presented with that, with with this kind of, uh, with obstacles, social obstacles elsewhere, it sort of came naturally. Is part of that about being a little cynical about other people or appreciating their motivations? I mean, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean. There is there's a great amount of cynicism, but also I think I mean I think I've got a pretty good sense of humor, which is key. Um, it's gotten me out of a lot of situations where I probably would have ended up dead, or other people would have. Do you have a favorite example? <laughs> Not really. I mean, it, it happens all the time. I've, I've I've had to kind of 
laugh my way out of some really dodgy situations. Um, when we were shooting the Vice Guide to Congo, we had a, mi a mini mutiny by these motorbike uh, taxi guys, and we were in a we we had just come out of the bush, this big death march through the jungle, and um, uh, the whole it was a Friday evening, so the whole village was drunk, and we had a potential riot on our hands. We were able to like kind of joke our way through it. Is Ian a pretty funny guy? Is that part of his talent? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got he's got an ability. Also, he's picked up a little Swahili along the way, so he can you know. I mean, one of the things that I I try to learn in every local language, the first thing I try to learn is to say is I'm not stupid, because it makes people laugh, <laughs> and and it's a good thing to get out there early, you know. <laughs> Although it's got to be interesting if that's the only thing you know how to say. Because, you know, it's, you know. <laughs> it usually opens up, like, you know, a dialogue in some way. From this uh, series that you produced uh, profiling these young American entrepreneurs in Africa, um, was it, I, I, you were definitely in South Sudan, uh, but where else did you travel in the course of uh, shooting the series? Well, for that show, it's not, it's not a series yet, um, but for this show, one of the characters who I watched develop over some years... Um, moves uh, a convoy of vehicles from South Africa to South Sudan, so we crossed seven countries in that trip. And had you been in all of them prior to this journey, or were some of them new to yeah. you? No, I've been in all those countries. Was there anything um, you know, particularly affecting about this particular trip uh, in terms of the contrasts, in terms of what you had seen before? Well, yeah, in a way, I mean, it was, it was a big departure for me because I've spent most of my time working in conflict or crisis areas, and there was no conflict or crisis at all other than just day-to-day -day life. Um, these guys moving a convoy of vehicles. It's also incredible the amount of resources that multinationals are throwing into sub-Saharan Africa right now. Uh, you know, certainly Kenya has become an enormous hub of uh, technological development. Um, you know, Ethiopia, you have agriculture. I mean, it just seems, you know, it, and obviously a commodities boom across the region. Um, and I wonder, uh, I mean, is... You know, kind of has that. Have you seen that change the texture of life in the last, you know, five six years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, I mean, a lot of this is tied into development. Um, people have become aid dependent. Whole economies have been like I spent some time in Liberia last year, and uh, it's just mind blowing to see like you know the rents, like what you, just you know what what you pay for rent is crazy because um, or. It's ten times what you would pay here, let's say, um, but it's because this has been established that the UN will pay this, and then therefore the NGOs will pay this. So local economies are completely screwed up. And, Fascinating. Know. So, I mean, are, are there any cases where you've seen real development that seems to be, you know, kind of leading to real uplift for the population, or do you generally see it as kind no, of shelving? I mean, I, I think that. Uh, there, there are good things. I, I mean, I've seen good things happen. I've seen people do good things that help. But, but I think overall, generally speaking, there's just the, the, the industry itself is very arrogant and very, um, very detached or disconnected from the, what you would think the concept is. But a lot of this has to do with, I think, things that are far more complex than I'm able to understand. You know, we have a failing economy here. It's much easier to send people offshore to make, you know, six-figure salaries and bring it home. Yeah. 
Tim, I want to talk to you about the economics of your business in particular. Uh, so having been you know, a documentary photographer, you describe this era of having worked for an enormous global oil company and you know they're just letting you do absolutely anything you wanted to do uh, and then having moved into the fabulously what I'm sure is the fabulously lucrative world of uh, you know taking photographs of conflict zones but uh, you know how has it changed because you know so you have one era in which you're painstakingly working with film uh, and now you have digital cameras and what have you and have a million people swarming these places and documenting how has it changed? In every way possible, but um, I mean, one of the things, the one that I, I'm moving back towards film. I'm shooting way more film than I now than I did over the last years um, because I I miss the the elegance and simplicity of it. Of you know, I mean, when I started out, five rolls was like a big budget. You know, so you're talking like a couple hundred frames was like a big day, and now you have the what people call the you know the spray and pray mentality, where you, and I'll, I mean I will I mean to be honest I'll I don't spray and pray but I'll routinely shoot you know a thousand or two thousand images in a day, and then there's all the editing and post processing and, and filing that so it's become much more complicated it pays a whole lot less you know there's definitely no money in it, um, but then <clears throat> somehow I've, I've survived in this business um, because I I think because I'm not a journalist. Um, I mean, wire photographers don't make anything. There's no way to survive on What that. leads them to do it? I think the same, probably the same thing that led me to do this type of work. Um, but I've always managed to sort of maneuver, I, I guess, more as like a, like a feature photographer. Um, but, I mean, there are a lot of young, the, 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 there's a flood of, of new photojournalists that, you know, are making 100 bucks a day. Um, which you can't afford to live on in Africa anymore. I mean, there was a time when you could live on that kind of money in Africa, but you can't. I mean, Nairobi's one of the most expensive cities in the world now. So uh, have you always been recognized as a visual artist, or is this something that has happened as your career has developed? Um, I, no, I mean, I, I, I just, just two years ago declared myself as an artist, having never done that before. Um, and that happened in a, in a sort of... Uh, a pretty exciting and fast way a gallery agreed to take me on and then took um, a show of uh, seven foot prints of Dinkins from South Sudan to the Armory show here in New York uh, two years ago and then again this year um, and to Chicago as well so that was sort of a big bang out of the gate um, and what is it about those particular photographs uh, that you think made them somehow more durable or somehow a different kind of object than documentary There's, photography? Well, they are documentary. Um, I mean, I hung a white sheet under a mango tree in you know, a village in South Sudan. But I think what's, what's compelling about those images in particular are there's a suspension of time or there's, it's got to do with the people as well that I photograph in that, in that series. Um, they're looking at the at the viewer, and the viewer is looking at the subject. And there's this kind of moment where there's no there's no fear, or there's curiosity on both sides. The, over the last few decades, I've photographed a lot more people in in pretty bad situations, either dead or, or soon to be dead, um, and somehow I've gotten accustomed to connecting with my subjects based on that concept. Um, 
and with this sort of fine art debut, uh, which I, I don't know if this is, you know, I'm going to become a portraitist or anything, but um, there's something nice about, there's a great tension in these photographs between the viewer and the subject, but it's safe. Like, nobody's going to get hurt, nobody's going to die. Um, there's just, it's all about curiosity. And uh, so that's, what, for those particular photographs, that's what's interesting to me. I'm working on another series right now that's actually going to be part of the Vice photo issue that I'm very excited about. I'm collaborating with another visual artist who's with the same gallery I'm with, whose work is very dark and surreal, and he, in a sense, is um, going to exercise my demons. He's taking some of the images that um, that have haunted me over the years and that he finds compelling and reworking them in a way to sort of exercise the demons. I'm excited about this this project. So, I mean, as you go forward, you know, you're working on a variety of visual art projects and what have you, but what are some of the other things that you'd hope to do to satisfy your curiosity? I mean, are there other, other mountains you haven't climbed, other things you want to see, other things you want to pursue? Yeah, there are. Um... Well, I mean, like I, just, I guess there's nothing in particular that I want to do right now that I haven't done, but there's some things that I have done that I would like to do more of. Like, for example, I'd like to go back to shooting more film. Um, I'm right now trying to work on some longer projects that aren't so run and gun. Um, This last piece, like I said, was a real departure and that I spent two months on the road with these guys, which is a long time. Um, But that's getting back, going back more to where I came from, where, you know, I'd spend a month on a project and not a week. You discussed earlier on your capacity for endurance, and I wonder, do you find, are you starting to find the limits of that capacity? I mean, have you been, have you been stretching them? Have you been testing them at all? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm getting older. I mean, then it's true. I mean, I, but How does it change the way you work? Well, I mean, I just crashed a motor, motorcycle in South Africa a few months ago, and I broke, like, everything. So that's sort of changed the way I work in that I couldn't walk for two months. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not quite as eager to go on a death march than I used to be, but I'm, I'm still not really, you know, I, I, mean, I feel pretty much the same. And uh, I can't, I mean, I guess conversely, I can't picture myself, you know, putting around the garden and getting old and having hobbies and stuff like that. I'm really kind of surprised to be alive. I was, um, and that's, there's an, I mean, an interesting turning point in my life where I didn't expect to be alive this long, so now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my time. When did you, when did you think that you were going to die young? I mean, was this something that was, was it just a background expectation that you had? As it wasn't, person? it wasn't some like big expectation. It was just sort of, yeah, I, I never, I, I guess the better way of looking at it is that I never thought about what it would be like to be old. <laughs> just never pictured that um, and and I still can't really picture that but you know like I mean to go back to where we started here I mean I, I just my father just died and I watched him I watched him get really old over some years and he had a long battle with Parkinson's and that was horrible to watch because he was such a you know dynamic and larger than life character I don't I can't see myself you know getting old like that so I don't know Well, thanks very much, Tim. It was really good talking to you. Thanks for having me.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.